0: The amplification should be fixed shortly, but welcome everyone to the uh,
1: Hudson Institute of Initiative sponsored uh, event we're doing this evening. This is sort of um, uh, an, an experiment, and it's, uh, I'm the executive director Charles Davidson of the Photocracy
0: Initiative uh, at Hudson Institute, but I take no responsibility for this evening because it's the idea of Jeff Gedman who is going to be introducing and uh, moderating this so as soon as we have amplification application and get this fixed, I'll turn it over to Jeff and we'll get started.
2: Hello. Feedback? Reverb? Hello. Hello. How's that? If you can't hear me,
0: Said, I, I uh, started my career as a high school teacher, and I know two things. No matter how many times we test it, the audio-visual stuff never, ever works. And the second thing is, you all sit in the back. This is all the way <laughs> No one wants to sit close to the teacher or uh, uh, the lecturers or the debaters. Um, Welcome, everybody. Uh, as Charles said, Charles being the founder and executive director of the Cleptocracy Initiative, a policy center at the Hudson Institute. Um, uh, we have created a little debate series. And, and it was our uh, thought, and I hope you agree, that it might be uh, a little more appealing to sit here and have a glass of beer and a pizza, rather than in a think tank with aggressive lights and uh, bad potato chips or something like that. So we hope you enjoy the atmosphere and the food. Uh, we'll do one of these, maybe bigger, maybe smaller, maybe this this or that menu every, month or two and uh, the idea is to probe a little bit under this rubric of kleptocracy and democracy because we all care deeply about democracy uh, and rule of law and the threats to these things and one Charles's insight is that kleptocracy as a system and culture is not only fueling a number of authoritarian regimes around the world but our role in Western societies in a variety of ways as enablers are enabling that. In a very unfortunate way, it is uh, quite inimical to the American interest, not to mention our values. So we start tonight uh, with the debate on big money media. As I was preparing today a little bit for, for my role as, mod- as role as moderator, I was reminded how money complicated this topic is. I, I think there are a number of dimensions to it. It's not easy to get one's arms around it, but we have two fabulous people to engage in a conversation about the challenge and problem of what? This this mingling and, and muddlement between media and money, big money, and politics around the world, in this country included. Uh, to pre- prepare myself for this evening, I reread this afternoon a report uh, which I commend to you, that was first brought to my attention by Martha, and we both our, our discussants in just a moment, by Reporters Without Borders, uh, which was published this summer, and uh, wow, what a riveting piece of work, <clears throat> in that it takes a, a global tour uh, of the problem, it doesn't propose solutions, but of the problem, and as you take this spin around the world, Uh, You start in places like Russia, no surprise, problems there. Places like Turkey, no surprise, problems there. And then you get to a large democracy like India, and you come across the riveting detail that there are about 800 television channels in India, but they are all or virtually all owned by very wealthy industrialists. You have very particular political agendas that get translated into the work of these media outlets. Uh, You you also get to these tantalizing little details like uh, the fact of a little, wonderful, peaceful democracy like Switzerland, where one of the wealthiest industrialists is chairman of a political party and publisher of one of the most important papers in the country. Um, It invites a number of questions about transparency or opacity, conflict of interest, and above all, the public good. Because for people like me, I was always raised on the basic ideas in the democracy promotion world of, you got to have elections, and you have to have independent judiciary, and you have to have a free press, or free competitive press. Uh, But then one slowly comes to the conclusion that while free is essential, in a number of ways, it's not sufficient to produce quality journalism that's in the public interest, that supports and nurtures democracy and all the values that democracy um, is about. So, uh, on my left, Megan McArdle, who uh, just recently came back from um, Cambodia, um, who writes for Bloomberg, uh, a regular column, who has been with The Atlantic. Uh, I know Megan, uh, because we did some work together when I was running the Legoff Institute in London. She, she's a great mind, she's part of the expression, but an uh, ideas entrepreneur, if that's a good way to put it. Uh, her most recent book, um, I, I'm a paraphraser of books, can you help me? It, it's the it, its the upside of down, it's how failing can be so instrumental How to leading to success. What How is the failing
1: title? well is the upside of that. But failing well is the key to success. It's a lovely Christmas gift. If you have any uh, tables that need propping up, it's really a good hype for that. Shaky daily legs. Children love it. Oh.
0: There we go. Kids love it. It can't be bad. And we'll see if it's available. So, so Megan, thank you, and more from you in a few moments. Martha Bayless, who came in. Uh, for this, from Boston College, who has been a film review critic for the Wall Street Journal, who's been a commentator on uh, religion, social policy, public policy, her most recent book, Yale University Press, um, on uh, American popular culture and U.S. public diplomacy. Its exact title, Martha, is... Through
2: Through a Screen Darkly? Popular Culture, Public Diplomacy, and America's Image Abroad. Uh, and I'm not sure about the Christmas gift.
0: The <laughs> Chris, kids love it. <laughs> okay, so, so let's start, I'm going to um, be seated. I'm going to invite Martha to, to make an initial statement, and as, as she can, kind anybody else, succinctly uh, put some propositions to us. Uh, articulate what the problem is in the area we're talking about tonight, I'm going to ask Megan to reply. We'll start a conversation up here on the stage between these two elegant discussants and and debaters, but pretty soon work all of you, or many of you, into the conversation. So welcome everybody, and Martha, you have the first word.
2: Okay. Back in the early 60s, um, Edward Albee, if you know that name, wrote a play called Three Tall Women. So I think if we had another one up here, uh, we could put on the play. But lacking a third, we'll have to proceed with the debate, if it it is indeed a debate. Um, Thank you for all all of you for coming. I'm just going to lay down some markers, um, some basic um, thoughts I have that I confess to you have not been very tested by me, except in my own musings lately, so I'm, I welcome uh, pushback on them when the time comes. My first proposition is that good journalism, uh, the kind that holds power accountable, is almost never profitable. It's That product by itself Simply has never made money and probably never will make money. So it needs a couple of things. The first thing that it needs is some kind of revenue stream, a cross funding arrangement, or financial support of some kind to pay for it. And the second thing it needs, because if it's doing its job right, it's vulnerable to political interference. So it needs some kind of safeguard or protection against that. And of course, the great irony is in most situations throughout history, and certainly in the US, the same safeguard against government is also uh, put in place by government. So that's something to ponder. Um, now, I'll say more about the US in a minute, but this is sponsored by the Kleptocracy. Uh, initiative, institute, so I just want to say a couple of things about um, these these basic markers and how they apply to that subject. Let um, me start with Russia, which is the main focus so far of the Kleptocracy Institute. Now, Russia is a country that has never lacked, where the media, both print and broadcast, have never lacked for financial support. I'm talking about from Soviet Union forward. Uh, they've always had robust financial support. Of course at the same time they have had absolutely no protection from political control. So that is that history, it's been pretty continuous except for a brief interruption in, in the 90s after the fall of the Soviet Union when the media became pretty wild and wooly and uh, outspoken and were quickly brought to heel by our friend Mr. Putin. China is similar since the Chinese Revolution. I couldn't tell you much about the Chinese media before the Chinese Revolution, but I can assure you that there's been an unbroken uh, and continuous uh, tradition in China of generous financial support plus almost complete political control. Sometimes relaxing the reins, sometimes tightening the reins, but always the reins are there. A prophecy is the intense concentration of both financial and political control. And in our era, it takes the form of seemingly private ownership. Um, you know, to the naive Western eye, particularly the American eye, it can look like private ownership. You know, Jack Ma in China looks like a private businessman, um, But of course, the connections and the ties to the government are deep and and the jury. So that's a good description of kleptocracy. That's a good description of a kind of privatized state media. Kleptocracy kind of takes the next step because it depends on a state that is itself a kleptocracy. <laughs> so you have a state that is stealing, is enriching itself and media becomes part of that machine. So now let me shift to the United States. Um, And you have to talk about our media in two different pieces. First, the print and newspaper, and second, of course, the broadcast. And then there's the digital era, which of course we can talk about later. In the case of print, good news in newspapers has never been financially uh, self-supporting. In the early days, the newspapers, of course, as I'm sure you all know, were owned by the political parties or by politicians, they were very biased, they were very nasty, um, and they got their support from political sources. When newspapers became a mass medium, um, they had to sort of become more objective because they were trying to appeal to a much larger audience, and they began to support themselves, as we all know, with ads, classified ads, and other kinds of information, business information, uh, entertainment. And soft features and all the other things and the Sunday the Sunday comics and all the things that people would buy newspapers for. Um, as for political safeguard against political interference, the print media have always had the First Amendment. And I suppose you could say they haven't needed much else. And with that combination of ingredients, they've developed a tradition of journalistic standards, which is Still, in this world today, kind of a, a standard for the world. Uh, you can say what you will about the biases of our newspapers, but they historically, and I think even now, uh, are holding on really purely out of a sense of tradition of a kind of journalistic integrity with some biases. Um Broadcast is different. Broadcast began with government oversight. Uh, Oh, very early with government oversight. In the 20s there wasn't a whole lot, but beginning in the 30s, you had the FCC, and you had uh, money, revenue streams came from advertising and from entertainment, not from news. But the reason that the major networks, networks did news was because the FCC required them to do news. Not only that, but it required them to do it in a responsible way with an old fashioned thing called the Fairness Doctrine which insisted that if you cover a public controversy, you have to present both sides. Now, that had its limitations, of course, and it had its radical critiques. But it was something that both the elites and the public in general could share and sort of kind of held things together, I would say, for quite some time. That all began to fall apart in the 70s and 80s. First, with the attacks on content by uh, George Carlin and other figures of the cultural left, And then, by the right, under Reagan, with the deregulation of uh, FCC um, controls, which greatly relaxed them, uh, did away with the Fairness Doctrine, and did away with limitations on ownership. And that left the American broadcast news business pretty much in fall to money, to the ability to somehow make, make money. And I think that has brought us, more or less, to the present, in the sense that, um, as if I may quote, uh, sorry, Technology, here. if I may quote Les Moonves of CBS uh, last February, you've probably all heard this quote by now. He said, uh, "I know I shouldn't say this, but um, uh, it's it's bad for America, but it's good for CBS." Uh, Every time Donald Trump opens his mouth, we love the circus, we love the fireball, we love the bomb throwing, bring it on Donald. Words to that effect. We've seen an election where a profit-making motive on the part of the media really did pave the way for uh, one candidate to kind of dominate the airwaves. People now estimate about somewhere around 3 billion uh, so-called unpaid airtime, uh, or free airtime, that Mr. Trump was able to uh, accumulate. Of course it's not free, it's not unpaid, it's paid for by advertisers. And it was very profitable. Now I think the media are suffering something of a hangover, and I'm not sure what's going to happen next. We can talk about that too. Um, Okay, I think that's pretty much what I wanted to lay down. Um, One thing that, I should say one more thing, one thing that complicates uh, trying to look at where do we go from here, is an ideal of journalism that arose during the Vietnam War and really came to fruition during the Watergate era. And that was an idea that journalism has no, has no real relationship and is certainly not beholden in any way to any government. This came out of the coverage of Vietnam War, which was the, uh, the joint U.S public affairs office tried to control the coverage of the war. The numbers of journalists in Vietnam proliferated. At the beginning there were 20, then there were 600 by 68. They began to go off the reservation and report what was really going on instead of what the the office was telling them was going on. And from there you got the idea that journalism should break completely free of its relationship to government, even if the relationship to government is a relatively healthy one. So now we have an idea in the world, and it's very dominant, that, we, that journalism is an autonomous practice. I even see discussions of autonomous journalism. Not, free, not a free press, not, not, a, not, a, not an independent media, but autonomous journalism. And I suppose there is such a thing, but if you put it back against my test, it means money, and it means some kind of both political protection and political oversight, but also protection from politics. And I don't see how a completely autonomous journalism is really going to accomplish that. If that's what we've been reduced to, and that's our only hope, then I think journalism is in serious trouble—not just from kleptocrats, but from all these other forces. So that's. I'm done. thank you. Before we go to Megan, I
0: have a, a, a couple of questions. First of all, um, can you say an additional word about the FCC and where it came from and what its purpose was? And then you said some of the Fairness Doctrine, but could you say a little bit more
2: about that? Just how it functioned in practice and what its flaws were? Well, the FCC came down from Mars. Um, the FCC was established in 1934, I think. Uh, in order to rein in the wild and woolly, a wild and woolly medium that nobody could get a handle on, was called radio. And uh, it apportioned the frequencies, and it, along with apportioning the, the frequencies, it granted licenses to radio stations, radio channels. And in order to get an FCC license, you had to do a couple of things. This developed over the years, but eventually, radio and TV, to, to get a license or to renew a license, you had to fill out a lengthy form which included a section about what you were doing for community service. In other words, how were you covering news of your community in an objective, fair, comprehensive and reliable way, and and so on and so forth. You had to provide evidence that you were fulfilling these, um, these making your activities into some kind of a public good. It mandated a certain amount of news, it mandated a certain amount of public affairs coverage, and mandated the Fairness Doctrine, which I did mentioned before, was everything had to be balanced, you know, by some measure or other. And it was deregulated heavily, still there of course, but it was deregulated heavily beginning in the 70s. George Carlin's case uh, uh, was lost in court. He sort of lost the battle. He had about the seven filthy words. um, But he won the war, of course, because with the rise of cable and other media. I, I don't know, you probably heard at least seven filthy words on cable TV. Uh, over the years, so that 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 battle over content has basically been lost. And to now to renew a, sta- a license for the SEC, you fill out a postcard. And then there's the question of ownership. Uh, all of our media companies in the United States, I think it's six six companies that own them all. Um, the the number of stations and channels that, that, that an individual company could own has been increasing and increasing and increasing. By the way, the Fairness Doctrine was repealed in 1987, and um, Rush Limbaugh on the air in 1988 because he was the first to take advantage of the fact that you could now have a totally biased broadcast channel, politically biased, one-sided, although, of course, there were accusations that the media were all liberal biased before that, which is why he had such a large audience, and there's some truth to that. Um, Is that enough?
0: (laughs) Um, because we're talking about a lot of different things at once, but part of this is about what you turn know, serious and responsible journalism it's a minor digression, but bear with me. Well, what does it mean <clears throat> when um, the fairness doctrine or any doctrine, any idea in our public debate says that we want to, when it comes to uh, matters of controversy, uh, well, you said, I think you said show both sides? I, I mean, in, in, Is quality serious journalism always binary about showing both sides? If if, uh, you know all the examples, but you know if if, uh, if Hitler is taking Jews to Auschwitz, do we need to hear from Jews
2: and Nazis? Um, First of all, it didn't apply to newspapers. It only applied to it was it was based. I'm not saying we should bring back the feminist doctrine. It was based on an idea that broadcast was a medium that went into people's homes that was a mass medium that had an enormous amount of power. Um, don't forget the FCC was set up in the 1930s. 1934, was, it wasn't an accident, but it was 1934, because in the 30s was when radio became a mass medium and Mr. Hitler used the radio to a dangerous degree. And this spooked America a lot. A lot of people were spooked by the power of radio in the 30s. So it was an attempt to kind of rein in a very dangerous medium, that's how it was perceived. And I think it probably outlived its usefulness uh, for reasons that you cite. I I can't quote the exact language, but I think it was based on things that were being debated in the civic space, um, reasonable debate, you should present both sides. It wasn't that you should give a platform to the devil himself. I thank you, Megan.
0: Um, we're so far in the conversation describing the problem, and I'm intensely curious whether you basically share Martha's assessment of the problem. Is she alarmist? Is she underestimating things?
1: Um, I mean, I'll start by saying information is power, and I think we have a lot of the same concerns. Um, I think I don't. I don't personally cite the media's problems in, in government action. I cite the media's problems. Fundamentally, developing the internet, and a lot of people have talked about sort of the competition for content. They've said, oh, well, there's all this competition. Oh, sorry. they said, oh, well, there's all this competition from new uh, content sources, and old content companies can't compete, and that's completely not what our problem is. In fact, our problem is that we are now competing with companies that don't do content at all. Google and Facebook have taken the lion's share of digital advertising. They take our content, they don't pay us for it, and they make ad money off of it, and we can't make ad money off of it because that ad anything else. That is the really big problem that the media faces, and that has revealed some holes in the system that 10 years ago we didn't know were there. I think the kind of sad fact for journalists, there used to be this entire... In mainstream media, right? At the bottom you came in and you started out in the police squatter or something similar. Way. Maybe if you were really lucky you started out on the women's page. And then you would work your way up and then hopefully someday you would get to the heights which was going to be reporting on national politics. If you were really good at that you might someday be on that page. And uh, it turned out when it became possible to see what people were reading, that everyone was reading the sports page in the comics and no one cared about the political coverage. And so that's actually something that you have to think about when you talk about this. Yes, it is worthy, yes, it is necessary, also no one reads it. And that has been true for as long as there's been the media, it's just that now we know. All of these resources that were poured in, all of it, it was absolutely cross subsidized by stuff that was generally viewed with, by contempt, with contempt, by people who did that wasn't real journalism. Well, it turned out the non-real journalism was paying for the real journalism, and now that the non-real journalism can't be paid for either, um, we are in a whole world of hurt, and I think that that absolutely is a problem, if you think about it, especially on the local level, because who is going to a city council meeting? It's really boring. I've been to a few. You sit there, oh my, I I can't even describe it. Um, If if you have a choice between going to a city council meeting and watching paint dry, think think hard. so I think that this is a problem, but I also think that we should be careful about where we locate that problem. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the things I want to clarify from uh, what Martha's been saying is, look, when we off- often, there's a habit on the left of talking about stuff that the owners have done, and what they're really angry about is the consumers. Right? If you think about what CBS was doing, and I have, I, I, it worries me. Right, that the candidate was basically able to completely bypass his party structure because CNN is giving him hours and hours and hours of free advertising functionally. CNN didn't do that because anyone, no kleptocrat, no big, powerful guy was saying, like, let's make Trump president. The that would be part of the was. But no one at CBS thought, like, I want this guy to be president. What happened was that the consumers wanted it. Now, I think there is a kind of conservative, you know, the, the kind of never-Trump side will say Would they have done that with a Democrat? The the media is liberalized. I'm going to come out and say that. We are like 97% Democrats, and there is no question that I think that stories that hurt the Democratic Party get a little bit more scrutiny than stories that hurt the Republican Party. I think that is a fair criticism of the mainstream media as it now stands. Uh, Many of my colleagues could push back against that. I, myself, to the right of most of my colleagues, so uh, take that for what it's worth, but I think that There was a real question about whether the Democrat, if someone had been upsetting the Democratic primary in the way, Sanders couldn't get on air for anything, right? Meanwhile, there was a great moment when Cruz was giving his victory speech and they cut away to like an empty ballroom to wait for Trump to come, right? And this happened to Clinton too. There's real questions about whether this dynamic had been happening in the party that most journalists wanted to win, whether that would have happened. That's a real worry but it's not a collector category. It's not a worry about a rich person, it's not a worry about the government sort of entangling the early capitalism. It is a worry about did um, a bunch of people feed an audience that wanted that? And that's a really different question from hypocrisy. So I think that I would say two things about this. And sort of two quotes I think sum up my kind of Thoughts about the media as it stands. I'm really worried about the future of my profession. Wherever there are two journalists, two or more journalists gathered together, there are two or more people talking about what they will do when the Titanic finally sinks um, and what sorts of driftwood we might be able to, to cling to as it floats away. Um, but the two quotes are, first of all, Billy Joel, and I'm dating myself a little bit. The good old days were not as good, and tomorrow, tomorrow's not as bad as it seems. I, I think that's a real thing. The good old days were not as good as, as they sound, and if you were the right half of the political spectrum, on the left you say, well maybe there's a little bias, on the right it looks overwhelming, and I think you know one example that I recall, um, although I was not on the right when this used to happen, but I mean, if you look at uh, 60 Minutes, there's sort of great examples of, for example, when the reporting on dimes, what they like to do is they would take a, a, a report on a semi-automatic rifle which you pull the trigger once, and one bullet comes out, and then if you want another bullet, you have to pull the trigger again So machine guns have been illegal in the United States, alternative depending on how you define them Which are automatic weapons where you pull the trigger and you just get a spray of bullets Been illegal in the United States since 1934 um, They were made more illegal in, in their early 80s So what 60 Minutes would do is they would do a report on semi-automatic rifles one, one trigger pull, one bullet, and then they would stick a watermelon on a fence and they would just blow the heck out of it with one of these, Their grandfathers you can, in fact, get a hold of an automatic weapon uh, if you're like $50, you only pay $50,000 for one. They almost never used in products, they're so expensive. And they would blow the hell out of it with an automatic weapon. Of course, viewers have no idea that there's any difference, right? Or, or they would record on consumer stories for cars, and they would need to sex it up a little bit for video, so they would put explosives in the car tank to make it explode more dramatically. This stuff happened all the time. And there's a famous story of Dan Rather with the famous Winter Soldier investigation where he turns up all of these veterans who were Vietnam veterans who were crazy and were living in the woods. Um, and it turns out most of them are not Vietnam veterans. Right? They're just people who would stand them. And none of this stuff mattered. None of it got publicized. Why? Because it fit with the preconceptions of the elite class that was running the media. That elite class is extremely well-represented in this room. I am a member of it. Everyone here is a member of it. And so the second quote that I always think of when I think about the media is this great Stephen Wright joke. I think my brain is my most important argument, but look who's telling me that. Um, And that is a huge problem. When we start talking about because this is something that I I really worry about with the Trump thing. It's like basically it's a bunch of elites sitting around going, how come we didn't stop those people from getting a candidate they wanted? It's a really troubling statement. It doesn't seem troubling to us because it has been the norm in American politics for the last 60 years for at least to just say, of course we're supposed to be able to pay. Was, well, of course they're not. I, I still remember in college someone coming up to talk to I'd never heard of her at the time. And she said, obviously we should be pushed the there. And I said, well, it's kind of a free speech violation. And she said, you don't understand. These people listen to him and they believe her. And there is a whole lot of that going around in my profession and in the elites in general. That these people need to be spoon-fed. Or we think these people ought to hear for their own good. And the problem with appointing, say, the fairness doctrine is a good example. LBJ used to love to use it to, for example, uh, punish radio stations and television stations who he felt had been on the wrong side of the court, had not been fair in their test ban treaty. Uh, Robert Highland a science fiction writer, had a great quote, a fair and responsible media is a great asset to any government as long as they get to decide what responsible is. Yeah. And this is the kind of question that I look at a lot of the things. I look, look I look at Rush Limbaugh. I don't like Rush Limbaugh. I'm obviously never getting invited on Rush Limbaugh's show. Not my next but I don't like what he does. I don't like the names he calls. I don't like the way I think that there are standards, there are ethically should be standards about how you assess facts. What you are willing to say, I don't think he was onto At the same time, I am extremely weary of granting myself the power to decide what constitutes responsible and what these people get to hear, because those things—the reason Rush Limbaugh exists in a lot of ways—there was a column in the Washington Post right after the election, or right before, the, I think, right before the election actually, saying fever swamps of the right wing media need to be drained. And I, my reaction to that was if the want to drain the fever swamps of the right wing media, they need to let the right wingers inside. Why do those fever swamps exist? They exist because those people aren't allowed. Because the, the moderate people weren't allowed in the right wing media. And you talk to people who are responsible outlets doing great reporting, they find it really hard to get higher in the mainstream outlet. The mainstream outlets use the left wing political magazines as their front team. That is not the same, that is not true of the right wing outlets. So, how, what does what then the right wing media look like? It looks different from, it doesn't look like a little farm tape for the mainstream media. It caters to its customer base in much the same way that CBS did. It tells them what they want. It gives them what they want. And there are a lot of people, I, I, I repeat this, places like National Review, places like the Weekly Standard, they adhere to the same authority standards that I do. A lot of those people are my friends, but they do a lot more opinion journalism than the left-wing outlets. Because that is what they need to sell to their audience. So, you know, that is the legacy of the fairness doctrine. The liberal hegemony that existed in the media ended up creating this system we are now The fairness doctrine was never going to be applied anywhere outside of broadcast because the reason the fairness doctrine was allowed to stand in the first place was that they were allocating a scarce national resource, which is broadband, right, is the, is the airwaves. As soon as you went off the airwaves, So that these forces I don't see as a reflection of changes in government, regulation, and policy They are a change in the technology And the previous system which we thought was great, which we thought was upholding these standards Which we thought was, and it was, it was really good for us There were a lot of people who felt alienated and left out of it And we should be really wary of when we talk about how we restore journalistic integrity Um, whether we're really talking about restoring journalistic integrity or whether we're really talking about taking that inf- that power of information and making sure that it stays firmly in all hands, I'm
0: um, going mean, to ask Peggy the question, I'm going to ask you the same question. Distilling um, it in my own mind, if, if we do believe there's something I don't know why it's called journalistic we do believe that pre-societies depend on quality, reliable, reliable, reliable information. Indian journalism is one thing that's important, but also to make informed decisions, you have to have some reading facts, actually. So if we believe in those things, here are you and Martha, at the end of the day, don't we have to have a, a restoration of Either greater responsibility or regulation, call it safeguards, are probably a combination of both, but when it's unbetter than free, and we have this profit motive without restraint, the executive says, you know, this is great, you know, and next, a cannibal channel. It, and if people want it, then we're going <laughs> to money from
1: it. I mean, we have something out of black and public. Uh, I, I'm not going to come out in favor of the cannibal channel, um, at least, as long as it's illegal, you shouldn't be able to have a channel about it, right, so, uh, you shouldn't have the murder channel, stuff, films, not turn back to, to people, but in fact, I'm forced against the government getting in and regulating what people can say, because again, it starts out as responsibility, but you haven't, information is power, the power cannot be, it, it, power cannot be gotten rid of. It can only be. It can only change hands. It's a little bit like you know, uh, matter can be either and or destroyed. It the changes form. It's the same thing. So when you turn that power over, does the power go away? No. It just passes in the hand of a government bureaucrat. And do you think that government bureaucrat doesn't have incentives? Do they not have standards about how you should responsibly report on the government? They absolutely do. So what is the answer? I mean, part of it is that like I'm not sure there's a good solution. But part of it is. And I think if you look at just how high what's, as I said, you know, when I wrote about the, the Washington, that Washington Post column, what I said was that what's actually a miracle is that journalists' standards are so high on the right. Uh, not because right wing people were bad, but because, in fact, you know, this kind of idea of objectivity and, and both sides and so forth, and, and the, all the reporting reports, this fascinating to me to look at, even from the 30s, the standards that people got away with. And Mark Twain was a journalist in the 1880s in Nevada and if he didn't to write about it, he'd just make something up. And that was more I mean, literally, would just be like there was a fire out on this ranch and five people died. And he would write that. And if you look at what people were doing in the 30s, a famous case with Eeyore, of the Yorker of a guy who's kind of making composite people, it's not even clear that there were ever any people to go into the composites. And, and now that's, that's a death penalty offense for your career. Right, so what's actually kind of but that was because as, the, as each city went down to one daily basically, in most places there's an incentive to keep as big an audience as possible, right? So how do you do that? Um, you make the facts as neutral as possible and you make your opinions as neutral as possible and there was still a left-wing skew on it because that's who the class of journalist was, but in general that's what have The right had none of those incentives right? The right, everyone on the right just, their financial incentive runs towards just being like Barack Obama is actually a socialist, and there are people in camps in this country right now, and no one did that, I, like a few really crazy people did that, right, but all of the mainstream analysts have been doing great reporting um, for decades, with no financial incentive to do so, and that's kind of remarkable, um, and so I actually what I think is that we, we really underweight, just in general, how dependent we are on culture rather than law. To, to keep things going. And the law is like an iceberg, right? There's this little bit that's actually the written law. And then there's everything underneath. And if you think about this, I think the best example I've ever heard was a, an economist who went to Russia and he booked a bunch of uh, right after um, communism fell. Right? And like we went in there, we imported our whole, like every expert in the West is like, we are gonna give you Western legal systems and Western banks, and it's all gonna work just like the West. We took the government away, obviously now you just have markets. And it turned out that like, taking the government away, conservatives were dead wrong. You take the government away, you do not just get markets. Markets are supported by a phenomenal amount of cultural capital. You kind know, of software that runs things. Right, and so this economist went in, he booked a hotel and he showed up. And the guy gave his hotel rooms away for, con- I mean, like, it was like, you know, a hundred hotel rooms for a conference. And he said, but I booked them, and he said, so sue me. Right, that doesn't happen in the United States. And you, it's not just because, like, You could sue, because it's in fact Donald Trump does this, right? He gets away with underpaying his vendors because he says, sue me. It's too expensive, and they don't. They sell for less than they were promised. But no one does that. Why? Reputational effects and also shame. People feel like that would be a bad thing to do, and so they don't do it. We forget how much of that we have. We forget how much of that, and that actually isn't going away. There are still new conservative outlets out there, and they are still adhering to... You know, I, I could name a dozen of them right now. They're still, and left-wing outlets, that are still adhering to the same journalistic standards. So I think what we need to do is strengthen, first of all, strengthen and shore up those norms. But second of all, stop calling each other such vicious names. Because the eas- when is the easiest time to abandon your moral standards when you are, like, you are in an existential war with an enemy who's going to destroy you? And we've turned politics into that in our country right now. And the longer we keep that up, the more people on both sides, and you saw, you saw liberals talking about this too, how they were going to stop covering Trump, neutrally, and just start calling a liar and so forth. And people started doing this, even on things where he actually didn't lie, but may have been wrong, right? I saw something with his claim that illegal immigrants had voted a bunch of people that had the headline false. Now, in fact, I think it's really unlikely that the like like, two, two million illegal immigrants pushed Hillary over the top and the of the popular vote, but we don't actually know, and calling that false was actually bad journalism. So, it's going to happen on both sides. What we really need to do is talk about how we're going to tamp down this incredibly vicious cultural and political war that's going on in our country right now. I'm, I'm way less worried about kleptocrats getting involved in journalism than I am about journalists on both sides abandoning a thing that has been really great for a large number of decades. Um, to, Martha, to, to you, um,
0: comment as you will, but I have two things on my mind. One, uh, from what Maggie just said, do we have a culture problem? And if so, why? And is law part of the answer? And, and second of all, to take us back to the international, um, for, for some period
3: of time, I'm saying this is a former president of Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, uh,
0: people in unfree societies and in transitional countries would look to western models and practices and ethics, including the United States, uh, as models for what good journalism is. How are people thinking about us in that today?
2: I know you'll forgive me if I ignore your question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would like to respond more directly to some of the things that Megan said. I think Megan and I, by the way, I'm sure we agree about things like campus speech codes and hate speech laws. I much prefer what I call voluntary restraint of speech, which is a matter of culture and custom. And I think one of the problems we have as a society is we've forgotten the importance of that. If you don't have some kind of voluntary restraints or customary restraints, uh, John Stuart Mill called it the take of custom and said it was even worse than censorship. Uh, but try doing without it, John. Now, if you don't have any cultural restraints on speech, for example, if there's no reason why I don't sit up here and use racist epithets and, and profanity, um, if there's no reason why I shouldn't do that, then somebody's going to pass a law to keep me from doing that, and I don't want to see that happen. So I think we agree about that. Um, but in terms of some of your remarks, um, I guess I'd start with uh, the FCC. Remember the FCC? The FCC uh, was deregulated by the Republican administration that had won uh, very handily and had a great mandate, and could have, instead of abolishing all of the uh, requirements of the FCC for licensing back when broadcast was the way media worked, instead of you know shifting it over to encourage a more objective approach to get try to discourage liberal bias and one-sidedness and all that stuff. They simply got rid of it in a a kind of free-market libertarian spirit. And I really do believe that was a mistake. Because I am not a great believer in consumer power and voter power um, all by itself with no kind of elite involvement. I believe in elites. I think elites should do what elites are supposed to do. I don't think our elites are doing what they're supposed to do. But well, you're never going to do away with elites. What you need to have are elites who know what the hell they're doing. And you know what's important. And you are willing to engage in, in the right amount of authority in the right place at the right time to set the kind of tone for the society, etc., etc., etc. We've never done without elites. Um, so the idea that somehow the people are going to make things fine without any elite involvement or any sense of responsibility at the top, I think is an illusion. So maybe I sound like an elitist. You can call me anything you want. Um, if you look back at the pre- the history of leading up to our election, you have a series of reforms of the political parties that were done in the name of the people, in mean the name of people power. You did away with the power of party officials to control the nomination process. You handed it over to primaries and to the voters. And you made a kind of plebiscite out of it. That was fine, and it was supposed to hand power over to the people, but instead it handed power over to the media. And then you had uh, a kind of media who I don't think were capable of uh, handling that particular job. Uh, because they were too focused on the entertainment value of the election and not focused enough on the importance of keeping the election uh, in some kind of, within some kind of bounds that, were, that would be useful to the public. I'm not putting it very well. Um, um, oh, as for bias, I, yeah, the liberal media were biased. Um, you can be biased and responsible journalists at the same time. I would think if you look for the worst offenders uh, in terms of abandoning journalistic standards in the name of your bias, you can find plenty of people on the left who do that, but you can sure as hell find plenty of people on the right who do it too. So we can sit sit and poke fingers at each other. By the way, I'm not a person on the left. Um, But we can sit and poke fingers at each other and accuse each other of, of bias. But I think we're in danger of getting beyond bias. Kleptocracy, the problem with kleptocracy is that once these characters get hold of the media, they don't engage in a war of information, they engage in a war on information. If you look at the external media that Russia directs to the rest of the world, the entire purpose of it is to distract, confuse, um, make things up. Yeah, we make things up in our country, I agree, but this is a systematic weaponization of fake news and it's a weaponization of all the bad things that our media have done over the years, and it's directed for the purpose of undermining any kind of public trust or faith in media. And that is the explicit stated purpose of the Russian external media. China's a little more subtle, they're not doing it quite that way, but Russia is pretty intent on it. And kleptocrats have borrowed a lot of those techniques, they degrade the information environment to the point where people really don't believe anything they hear. They become totally cynical and totally dispirited. And that's frankly what I'm afraid of, and that's way beyond bias. I mean, bias could look good by comparison to that. Um, I'll stop there. Uh, either that or pull out an automatic weapon. you.
0: Uh, um, let, let us use this uh, opportunity now to open it up to all of you. I think somewhere we have a microphone in the room, is that right? Or is this the microphone? Uh, that is it. There's no, well, I have a microphone. Hello, hello. 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 Is it working now? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Is this the one that's the last one? Yep, I got it. Oh, thank you. Okay, who's, this gentleman right here,
4: and if you would tell us who you are and who yours. Mike Nelson, I work for Cloudflare a med security firm. I also teach internet policy at Georgetown in my spare time. Your point about information is power is something that was true when we had limited channels. The internet gurus like Ben Sirk will tell you that information sharing is power. And it's the fact that a single journalist or blogger in India can do a sting operation on the Ministry of Defense and expose corruption is a, is a powerful way in which grassroots journalism can expose its hypocrisy. Do you have any hope? Is it possible that information sharing will go into this? I am this is personal interest. I'm working with you ben, on a report on how the internet can expose corruption.
1: Um, I I tend to be a squish on everything, and I think that's what I'm saying. In a lot of ways, we don't disagree, like, I I worry about these things, too. It's more that I I worry about the proposed solutions as well as the proposed problems. Look, in 2004, uh, I was a very minor part of the the blogger's who took down Dan Rather when he he published uh, what turned out to be fake memos uh, saying that Bush had been AWOL. And that was a massive transfer of power from central nodes to a decentralized network, and I think that we have seen that um, all along. I mean, I think that we are both fans of Jonathan Rauch's excellent Atlantic article arguing that um, I, I don't just think that it was the primary process, it's also campaign finance reform, um, it's also a lot of the pork-busting reforms. it's also a lot of stuff that all sounds great, and it's gotten political parties and left them completely in the hands, of activists who come up from outside and sort of start overthrowing the process, and I think that there are really big downsides to that, right, if you look at, um, I think if sometimes you look at a group like Black Lives Matter that is is working on an incredibly important topic, but also will have members who make really not very helpful protests that hurt the overall cause, and like, when I was doing this in the 90s, we had older people who would be like, yeah, we tried that in the 60s, I didn't work, don't do that. And they would kick out people who showed up and were looking for trouble. They would kick those people out of the groups and then they wouldn't tell them where the next protest was going to be, right? All that's gone. And I was talking to a friend who's still on the left. And he said, you understand, there's no there there. There's no one who can say, please don't let that person show up and make trouble and ruin it for the rest of us who are, who are, are, are serious and doing good work on an important cause, right? And that is a, a downside. An upside is that in a lot of ways, right, that that it is harder to shut it down. Right, the bad people who want to shut things down to protect themselves, right, it's, it's the two sides of the same coin. And I don't know where this is all heading, there will be some good. Thing. I mean, I look. I'm old now. These kids with their Venmo and they're Snapchatting. Right? Like I look at them. They can't see. They're actually cannot seem to go for more than ten seconds without looking at their phone. I find it weird. I'm a little frightened of the world. I'm starting to understand why old people like start looking forward to death. Right? are like, because oh. you're just like I don't understand the world anymore. Right? Like it's passing by. I don't get any of it. I'm done. Right? Um, and I've I started to feel a little of that already in my 40s, and so like, I, I'm, I'm both frightened and excited about the world that we're in. I don't think you can say it's either good or bad. There is it, it, the last thing that comes out of Pandora's box is hope. So, hi, um, my name is MJ Crawford,
5: and I work at. Can you hear me now? Okay. Hi, my name is MJ. I work at the State Department, and um, I wanted to ask a question that's sort of been on my mind, so I'm really happy to have the opportunity to ask you all. Uh, but I, you mentioned a little bit about the liberal slant in the media. And, uh, of course, uh, President-elect Trump has sort of uh, expressed his uh, unhappiness with how uh, his news has been covered in the media. And I was wondering, um, it seems that he uh, isn't exactly using mainstream outlets to report his personal news, so uh, to give some examples, uh, going straight to YouTube, um, of course going directly to Twitter, and I was wondering um, what his pivot toward uh, using social
2: media to report uh, his personal
5: doings, what problem might this pose for mainstream media?
2: Outlets? I'd like to respond to that if I could. Um. I have the impression that Twitter, despite my advanced age, I'm quite interested in Twitter. I don't use I use Twitter. I Twitter I tweet good newspaper articles for my 150 followers. Um, but there's been some recent research on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is one of the few social media where you can actually aggregate the data and draw some conclusions. I gather this is not possible with Facebook, even by Facebook. Um, because the data, the volume of the data is simply too large. But with Twitter, you can aggregate it and draw some conclusions. And, some, and the demographics of Twitter, it's quite interesting to note. Um, first of all, people who use Twitter are not at all representative of the US population. Second of all, people who tweet regularly are not at all represent- representative of the users of Twitter. So, this is a really bizarre situation because Donald Trump and, and most of the people who tweet and who tw- use Twitter are not members of the um, great, unwashed working class, uh, which is supposedly the support supporters of Donald Trump. Tends to be people in elites, tends to be people who use a lot of media, tends to be people in the media. So look at it this way. When Donald Trump sends his tweets out, he's not reaching the people in Johnstown. He's not reaching the people in, in Erie, PA, he's reaching the medium, and they read his tweets, and then they go crazy over his tweets. And each piece of little red meat he throws, it keeps them busy for about three or four, sometimes five days. And they don't have to cover anything else; they don't have to do anything else. It's a self-reinforcing circle. Now, you can call that liberal bias; you can call it what you want. But he's using the social media in a way that we don't—I don't think we even really understand. He has the evil genius for this. Um, but it's not, you know. You have to kind of look at how these things actually work. Um, that's why I'm putting forward my, 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 my effort to sort of say, news will still be needed. Good information will still be needed, no matter how our media our structure are structured or configured, no matter how the revenue comes. They need revenue, and how, no matter how it's set up. I don't know how it will be set up. They will need from our political system, both protection from politics um, and some kind of, uh, well, protection from politics, from our political system. And that does sound like a paradox, but that's what they're going to mean along with money. However they get configured. And I think if we, if we kept those things in mind, we might be able to rope our way to some kind of a, a, a path forward. Um, I
1: think I took your question to be what's it going to do to the mainstream media that this is, you know, I think that um, it's not a huge problem it, it ends the, it means that there's fewer scoops for big mainstream outlets, but frankly the internet has made the scoop dumb right, it, you, you look at like the 40s and people are trying to get scoops because if you get a scoop you can sell papers for like 6 hours while the other guy has to retool his printing presses, right you get a scoop now and you've got it for probably all of 30 minutes before someone else has re-reported it and, and gotten it up and so I, I think from the perspective of me, like he puts it on YouTube, it's still out there. Um, and so for me as an information consumer, I don't care that much. Um, I, I think I would agree that Trump has proven to be an extraordinary manipulator of what the media business looks like now. Um, at the same time, I really struggle. Yeah, I mean, he really is like good at, in some way, the, one of the features of kind of media life, especially, and this has always been true to some extent and it's just, it's on steroids now. Uh, Scott Alexander, who writes a blog called Slate Star Codex, which I highly recommend to everyone, has a great post pointing out called "The Toxoplasmosis of Rage," and he points out that if you look at controversies, the worst examples, the ones that are actually the least helpful to a cause, end up getting to be the ones that are the most famous. And why is that? Because they're controversial when people talk about them. So if you talk about something like, if you look at Trump, right, what's probably the most objectively, we can't really argue about it, we know, we're pretty sure it happened, thing about him is probably Trump University, right? It's like pretty obviously, it doesn't look like any of the students got any value out of it, they dropped off of tens of thousands of dollars on this thing. This is the least talked about thing in this campaign. When it gets talked about, the wall. Why? Because we argue about the wall. Should we have a wall or a et cetera? Right? No one. I've and I've had a lot of Trump supporters from among my readers. And if Trump, if anyone in my comment section brings up like Trump University, it's just is a a conversation. I have not seen a single Trump supporter try to defend Trump University. Not one, except for like his surrogates who are out there for his campaign. I have not seen one of the. So no one has talked about it. What if they talked about the wall and all the rest of it. Why? Because they can make an argument about it. And that's a general feature of the media always. It has been amped up to, you know, three hundred percent, a thousand percent, ten thousand percent by social media. And what that and Trump is just a genius at finding that thing every time something that's kind of worrying comes out about him and his conflicts of interest or so forth, like he just drops another controversy on Twitter and we stop talking about it. And why does the media cover it? And there's an example I remember actually having a debate in like 2008 with Glenn Greenwald, uh, who's now at the Intercept, where he was really angry that no one had talked about uh, Bush and torture, and instead they talked about Obama's bowling scores. And I was like, it reminded me of a wedding DJ I once saw say someone was complaining about the chicken dance at weddings. He was like, look, you think I I come home and walk out to the chicken dance in my car? I play that because people at weddings like it. And this is a similar thing, no one in the media wants to cover the latest thing that Trump says. No one wants to be in this cycle. We are in this cycle because we have to make money. But also because like once someone, said, with as with Obama's bowling score, no one was like, Maybe we'll have a bowl off with your Putin. We'd better spend a day on this. But once some other outlet had covered it, well then you kinda had to have a take on it. And then once they had a take on well now look at that. All everyone's talking about Obama's well, vote bowling score. So let's like run another story on it and it dominated a news cycle. And that's the situation that we're in. And once people start talking about it, it is news. It's this weird recursive process where a story that no one cares about, that no one in the media really wants to be covering, becomes news because everyone in the media is covering it. Um, and and may, it may affect the presidential election. Well, if it might affect the presidential election, I have an obligation to report on it. If it might affect his administration, I have an obligation to report on it. He's a genius at explaining that. I think we're gonna see more of that in the future. And that will affect the mainstream media because it means we spend a lot more time talking about this stuff. And I don't really, realistically see any way that the government can intervene and, and start telling people what they're allowed to report on in the presidential election. Right, the cure is worse than the disease. At the moment where the government starts saying this is a presidential election, you may not report on these eight topics we have just handed unimaginable power over to someone that no one should have. And so unfortunately I don't know how to fix it. I think it is a problem. But there you are. So there's a really long answer to a, a short question. But.
0: We've got about six hands. I think you were first right in the front row, and we'll work our way around. This lady right here. My name is.
3: My name is Beth Rosenthal and uh, I'm retired and not working. Oh, hold it very this, close. this is better? My name is Beth Rosenthal and I'm retired and not working. Um, I think that on a personal level, I live in the world of journalism of the future. I live in Montgomery County, Rockville to the exact, And there is no news. We have, there is no newspaper. The Post barely covers Montgomery County. So we don't know what's going on in terms of elected officials. Uh, Rockville is now, I think on its third cycle of its town center. <coughs> rebuilding and whatever, trying to attract businesses and- in the 40 years that I've lived here, there's been minimal problems. No, you don't know what's going on. Uh, there's was a development up in Darnestown, up uh, have Clarksburg, that hit the news a few years ago because of some juniors with the Montgomery County Planning Board. So if you if you want to
0: what, you, what you're talking about is on a national level and also on a world level. But if you want to get a grip on what it is, you have to look at the local level. And there is no news. There's nothing. Okay, I, I mean, as you're
4: holding your fire on that, let's take a couple more and we'll bundle them together. This gentleman right over here. Hello, my is Martin Melton. I'm with a journal called Providence. And, uh, my question, I, earlier this summer, I read The Red Web by Solitano's in Oregon, sorry if I put you those names, but, um, about the Russian airline policy, and it was a very depressing book, and I highly recommend you know, everyone who's interested in Russia to read it, but at the end, there was a bit of optimism where they looked at how uh, information about Russian soldiers fighting Ukraine spread across Russia, even though Russia tried their best to control the top of the media. They um, kicked out people who were not cooperative um, from leadership positions, and yet on VK, people were spreading photos that the Russian soldiers had posted online. And my question is, if we are going to uh, determine someone is going to be able to determine what is fake news and block it, um, is Russia going to copy that exact same code and put it into their software so that those images that the Russian soldiers or other people are posting is blocked, and so that way people in Russia don't know what's going on? Uh, let's see if we can get
0: one more right now. We're right behind you, now, with our children there. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.
6: Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. My name is Stan Morganstein, and I'm also retired. But my question to uh, both me and Martha is: It time to bring back the fairness out? And the reason I'm asking this is because it's the fire gentleman just mentioned, uh, and Martha mentioned earlier, it's not just talking; it's a question of um, using. At it. It, it's a matter of uh, using false news to be able to influence what's going on. As we saw in the election most recently, in their investigative information that's been reported by the FBI relative to hacking, we're now seeing stories in the press relative to the use of social media, uh, Facebook, etc. During document, wouldn't we have the situation where if this information goes on social media to the main press outlets that at the very least would be required before it hits
1: the press outlets that there is an to be able to validate I mean, cards on the table, I would not favor bringing back the fairness doctrine if I thought that it was possible, but I also think how do you bring back the fairness doctrine? You I know, mean, a lot of this stuff is Facebook. Are you gonna control what people are allowed to share with their friends on Facebook? Are you gonna have Facebook shut that down? Are you gonna make it illegal? Are you gonna start shutting down websites, most of which aren't, many of which aren't even hosted in the United States? Or there's just like, are we gonna start having internet censorship where we have ISPs saying, you know, when you start actually working through the practicalities, what you start quickly saying is that what we should do to deal with the problem of fake news is have like a massive censorship regime. And then I sure hope the government's not going to abuse that. Um, and then we need to do this in order to fight the, government, the Russian government. I actually think, though, that we, and, and I, I think look, the Russian fake news stuff is a huge problem. Um, I, and I've, I've had. Those people in my comment threads, I hilariously have a kind of a regular commenter who is Russian and loves calling them out in Russian. Uh, so I, my comment thread will suddenly switch to the Russian language as they go back and forth. But um, here's the thing: I think we shouldn't <coughs> underestimate the kind of immune system that people do have to this. Great, right? it is true. I mean, if you remember when the internet, like, ten years? It's still, there's still some of it, right? But I remember like when my mom got on the internet oh my god, the number of women who've been kidnapped in terrible ways in parking lots somewhere, right? All of these email forwards that I used to get like 10 of them a day, and I don't get them anymore. Why? Because people eventually started realizing that these were hoaxes. Even my mom, who is like a lovely human being but a little, does not like computers that much, right? And that is something, or Nate Silver pointed this out. Do you remember all of the there were these sites like Upworthy, and they would have this headline style that went incredibly viral. And it would go something like, "They put the cat out the window. You'll never believe what happened next." Right? Um, well, you don't see those headlines on Facebook anymore. Why? In part because this Facebook changes algorithms, but also because now everyone knows that like if you see a headline that says "literally what happens next," it turns out that what happened next was the cat stood out there for a while and then left the cat back in right and and so people do start to recognize these patterns and I have seen on both right and left in my time is, I started as a blogger before I became a mainstream journalist and to see like I actually think you know we can be down on a lot of the stuff that has happened but the quality of journalism has gone up the quality <laughs> of casual errors on, on technical subjects has gone hugely down because people have now got like this little bloggers sitting on their shoulders saying, I am going to write the meanest post, or I am going to tweet the most thing to your editor if you don't check. So there's part of that, and, and but also because readers started to, as they got, as the amount of information they had available. But think of what I do on a normal day, like I spent all my time looking through CBO, with Congressional Budget Office reports and so forth. You had to literally go to the budget office and get a copy of the budget once a year. And the budget reporters used to camp outside the office, literally, they called it tax day and they would all sit out there and do this huge thing and go home and write a column on it. Right? The quality of information but also what my readers expect is much higher. They expect a much higher familiarity with my, my content. They expect me to deliver accurate and not kind of like some really quick silly boss that I take. And they don't just want to hear me quote a think tanker. They want to know that like I thought about this and I'm familiar with the underlying literature myself. That is new. And so while I worry about fake news, while I worry about all of it, while I yes, read all of the same columns about how fake news is the problem in this campaign, I actually think that we, we should have a little more faith in our readers than we do. Yes, most people believe a bunch of garbage, including all of us, right? You cannot know, the world is too complicated to be intimately familiar with the details about your policy issue and so forth. Many of us have quotes, facts, a mystery, cetera, just floating around our brains that are not true. That said, we also correct them, we try to, and the Internet has made that, I think, un- on balance better and not worse.
2: Um, now I think maybe you're in the bubble. You're in the elite bubble. Because the, the we who demand higher standards and the we who care, care very much about the quality of uh, detail on, re, on news, news reports and blog posts about the Congressional Budget Office report. Um, that's the same way that you were saying below before um, doesn't really represent uh, very much except itself. You know, people who are highly literate, highly educated, this is a great time. We can find anything on the internet. We can use the internet in all sorts of ways. It's very rich time. It's much better than it used to be. But for most people who are not highly literate, not highly educated, don't spend a lot of time with their devices quite the way we do, um, it's probably worse than it used to be. So I think there's a kind of news haves and news have nots uh, going on in our society. That was my first response. But I also wanted to um, say something to this gentleman about the people who are teaching Russia how to censor its internet are not us, it's China. China is the master of this kind of thing. They built the internet to be controlled. Russia did not. But now Russia is trying to learn how to control it. And they're taking a lot of lessons from China. And they're getting pretty good at it. Um, So you know, the internet is no longer the, the great workaround of censorship. The internet is now a vehicle of censorship, along with propaganda and surveillance. And it's getting better and better at it. And every new technological in- innovation we come up with, if you flip it around, it has an evil side, and they, we all know that. Um, and to the lady from Rockville, I really agree with you. Um, local news in this country is non-existent, practically, and that's really a serious problem. And I just wanted to relate it to a, a global point, which is that if the world is, if a lot of people in the world are becoming more distrustful of big media and what it has to say, and they think it's all BS, and they think it's all lies, and they don't believe anything they hear, which is really the dynamic that we're looking at. One way to build trust is to deliver to people local, good local news about the things they know about. You know, in Cambodia, where I was recently, um, I was uh, spending some time with the Radio Free Asia Khmer service. Uh, which, you know, you may, whatever you may think of Radio Free Asia, they're pretty effective in Cambodia. They have their most popular international channel, and they do endless detailed reporting of all the land grabs, all the rubber plantations, the dams that are being built on the rivers, the draining of the lakes, the ecological um, mayhem that's being perpetrated in Southeast Asia, largely by Chinese interests. They report that in a fine-grained way so that, People living in rural Cambodia trust that channel. Because that channel tells them what's going on in their own neighborhood, so they have a reality check. They know whether it's true or false. They don't know national news from the French or the Russians or the Chinese. They don't know if that stuff is true or false. But they know if it's true or false if it's about the Cambodian equivalent of Lotho. And And if you don't have that level of kind of trust and responsibility, then I think you are going to be prey to the grand manipulations of, of people who don't care about holding power accountable, but quite the opposite. Um, anybody have a last question? Uh, two last questions. Here in front of no, the gentleman all the way back. From, uh, the
0: 1988. Wait for Wait for the microphone.
6: It uh, there, there seems like a lot of earnest people, a lot of celebration for the Soviet Union. People were going to do it right. By the early 90s, there was a cleptocracy in effect. Uh, are we seeing that here? Uh,
0: You need, uh, Rex modern research,
6: <clears throat> I was uh, personally fascinated to uh, watch uh, Mr. Bezos, one of the most successful businessmen in the United States, purchased from the Bradley family the Washington Post uh, recently. And I was hoping that uh, you might be able to comment on the consolidation of uh, media power in the United States. Uh, whether it's Rodox, whether it's the Bezos, whether it's the Salzburger family, and uh, maybe draw conclusions based upon that. A previous uh, episode of this I'll talk with the initiative series of presentations talking about how financial services may have
0: a swallow capitalism. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Adam, did you have your hand up? Someone back there. No. Um, I see a hand. It's all yours. <laughs>
5: Hi, uh, Deborah Kagan. I wish I was retired and that I could afford my sports tickets. The (laughs) microphones
0: are so weak here; you really have
5: to get close. So, you know, this whole conversation has revolved around this concept of elites versus. And I have to say, some of the comments used to describe the working class in this country are as offensive to me as words that would be used that were racist or anti-Semitic. And I think it is a horrific misnomer to assume that working less people, the people you call to fix your toilet, to build your houses, are not literate and don't use the internet and don't look at it. Look at public libraries every day and they're filled with people who can't afford their own computers and their own internet and they're packed with these people who are construction workers and everyone else. And frankly, I have to say that I'm pretty sick and tired of hearing about how stupid a big chunk of America is because they didn't go to the same school that
2: you did. I guess this is the new political correctness. Um, I certainly wasn't saying anything like that, by the way. It it won't help to say that I know a lot of working class people, I suppose. Um, It won't help to say that um, I know there are a lot of people with highly literate working class people and lower middle class people, and it won't help to say that there are still also a lot of people in America who aren't particularly literate and aren't particularly educated and don't particularly seek good information out when they're using the internet. So, you know, there is a question of, of information haves and have-nots, and I'm not, you know, I think it's very unfortunate. I think everyone deserves decent information. And when i are not getting it, I think it's unjust, and I think it's dangerous. And I, you know, if you can, I would suggest you maybe find somebody else to level that out, okay? Um, I had something else I was going to say. I couldn't hear this question very well. And then there was another one. I've been going around asking people if I think we're headed for kleptocracy. I guess you just, I would ask you to, 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 I would ask Jeff Bezos if he were here. Um, I'm glad he's supporting the Post. I've heard only good things about him. The Reporters Without Borders report includes him as an oligarch who has bought media because Reporters Without Borders is based in Paris and they always love to go after the Americans and see them as just as bad as everybody else. But, you know, what stands between him and, and and some transformation of the post that's really negative? There's a lot of answers you can give to that. There's a lot of reasons why he might not be able to turn the post into his personal media empire. Um, but just look at them and ask, you how, ask yourself how strong or how fragile those things are, and what kind of responsibility we all bear for maintaining whatever protection we have of our media for that of its freedom and its autonomy from this kind of a possibility of interference by plutocrats kleptocrats or the government um, we, we take too much for granted in this country I
1: think uh, yeah I will I, I will say like I, I I myself grew up in, on the upper west side of Manhattan, making me the most acute person in the country. Uh, on the other hand, like, I come from a working class family in Trump country. Uh, my personal experience is that they are not noticeably worse informed than they were 20 years ago. Um, I had, as most of us probably do, more relatives who blew some crazy things back then. Um, we have a don't ask, don't tell policy on, on Trump and my family. No one is. Uh, some. I, I know a lot of my relatives probably voted for him. Um, they're still two people. Uh, I still love them. Um, I'm not going to name names because I haven't told them. I haven't said who I suspect, and they haven't asked me who I voted for. So. Um, but, you know, this is the. On, on photography, no, I don't think we do. And and here's why. And, and and Martha asks, how would what would happen if Bezos started? If Bezos, I, I mean, I can tell you that I have friends who work at the Washington Post and say he's most of them say he's doing wonderful things there. or The other ones I haven't talked to. Um, he seems to be a good boss. But look, like what would happen if someone at the Washington Post were ordered to say not report something on Amazon? That reporter would quit, publicly announce it and it would be a disaster for project basis. It would be embarrassing, his name would be in every other paper in the country, right? Now, it's not that I think that like that's always the case. I think, like, I went, I was reporting in Greece last year during their election, and one of the things that people said to me was, like, look, all the papers are owned by a small number of rich people, and that makes it really hard to do reforms, because there are things that threaten the interests of all of these rich families that kind of don't get a fair hearing. Um, that is not a problem in America, I think it would have to be really, really consolidated in a way that I don't think you can consolidate now, right? It's that you would have to consolidate the media down to four or five families, and then there would have to be no internet, and this goes back to the thing of like, yes, Russia does bad things, yes, there's all sorts of bad stuff that happens on the internet, but there's also good stuff. It is not the dream that we had in 2003 when my friends and I used to say the internet interprets censorship as damage and routes around it. But you know what? China's censorship doesn't work perfectly. And people in China, for all of the censorship, for all of the bad stuff, they probably have more access to information that the government doesn't want them to have than they did 20 years ago. So I, I, I think in the end... Yes, there are many problems. The main problem I'm honestly worried about, I think it, is, it may possibly be very true that the future of journalists of journalism is corporations and rich people. And that either it will be native sponsored content that will be run by, by uh, corporations who have every incentive to blur the line between journalistic content, to breach the Chinese wall between editorial and advertising, and try to blur that line as much as possible. Um, or that alternatively, it's going to be rich people who have, who have some sort of an agenda. It's not necessarily bad. Their agenda might be like, look at the people who fund ProPublica. What's their agenda? Like, I think people ought to do investigative reporting. That's an agenda, but I'm okay with that. Um, and that is something where I think that may be the future of journalism, precisely because it's not a money-making enterprise, and I don't understand how it's going to become a money-making enterprise again. Um, but that said, that's not, you know, in, in, in 1900 and in, in the 1800s, papers were these tiny presses, and it was a bunch of crazy people, all of whom had extremely strong. I mean, you think this election was mean? Go back and look at what the founding fathers were saying about each other. They were accusing each other of all sorts of crazy stuff, right? Um, and the factual standards weren't that high, and all of the rest of it. And you know what? We got a democratic republic, the first one in the world that has lasted for 200 years. So yes, it matters. Yes, it's important. We can work around it. What matters is a culture and a community that is, is committed to having that republic, and I think that America still is, and I hope that it will be for many years to come.
0: Megan, thank you. Um, a, few, a few words of thanks to Charles Davidson, to the Hudson Institute, Natalie, to you and your colleagues for organizing us, inviting us, and, and giving us here to the staff at Plus Boys and Poets. Um, and for those of you who have time, um, in 20 minutes we're going to be serving free wine and free dessert. <laughs> that was fake news. I was just testing it. <laughs> everybody, everybody lean <laughs> in. No, you actually go home. Um, uh, I, I, I hope... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: Um I'm more of a <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> it's, yeah, um right. but, um <laughs> you've been you a great audience.